I grew up in Erie County, Pennsylvania, uh, known primarily for its snow. And uh, my parents got buried in about 50 inches of it right after Christmas. Um, also known for some fishing, if you're a fisherman out there. But one of the other things that Erie County is known for is its vineyards. If you've ever driven, particularly you can see it if you head east on Route 90 on the east side of Erie, you see vineyards galore. And, and Erie uh, has a number of wineries, but actually Welch's grape juice buys up a significant amount of the grapes in the area. So I grew up, I grew up actually about a mile from a vineyard. I've always been fascinated by vineyards. Grapes are, and vineyards are very interesting in how they grow. The way a vineyard works is a vine, one primary vine sort of works as the trunk for the whole plant. And so it comes up out of the ground, carries all the nutrients out to the rest of the branches. And then the branches come off and the branches actually grow fruit based on the nutrients that it gets from the vine. Now most plants, when you plant them, just sort of grow naturally. But the way vines grow is they actually have to, to grow and hang on to things. And so they tend to wrap around things. So if you find grapes in the wild, a lot of times they don't grow very well because those vines will, as they wrap around, they'll choke out other vines or other branches and they'll even choke out the vine itself. And so uh, um, very often in the wild, very few grapes grow on the vine itself. So when you go to, to grow grapes and you want to grate fruit from the grapes, you have to let the grape, you have to control it a little bit. You have to have some structure. If you've ever driven past a vineyard, you'll see trellises that give structure to the vine. And normally the vine will travel across the structure and then the branches will hang down from them so that everyone makes sure they get fruit and the branches don't end up cutting off the vine itself. To be a good vineyard, to have a good vineyard, you have to be a good vine dresser. You have to take care of your plants and, and because a lot of things can happen that will mess up the vineyard. One is that when those branches start to grow, they'll choke each other off. So you have to kind of control where they grow. Sometimes a branch will come off of the vine. If it does that, it no longer has the nutrients of the vine and it'll die. And if you don't remove it, it'll start to rot in place and end up ruining the branches and the vine around it. So you have to remove the dead branches. And then sometimes a branch will grow, but it won't end up producing fruit. So it robs the vine of nutrients, but it won't grow any fruit. And so as the vine dresser, you have to go and cut that branch off. Sometimes too, you get good vines, but they're not great vines. Or as the year goes on, you'll get little shoots to come off of the branches, making more branches. And if those continue to grow, it'll rob the fruit of its nutrients from the vine. So you have to cut those off too. And what do you do with all those, wine, all those branches that are no good? Nothing. You can't do anything with those branches. And the only thing you can do is burn them. Now I realize that is a lot of botany for a sermon. Probably more botany you've ever heard in a sermon. But this, is, this would have been commonplace in those days. Jesus, as a carpenter, understands how vines work. He's probably helped some of vine dressers in the family take care of some of these things. The disciples all know this. You and I don't. So to understand this passage, we've got to understand a little bit about it. We also need to understand the context. 
This passage in particular happens in the upper room discourse, which means it happens the last night Jesus has with his disciples. He gathers them. He's already washed the disciples' feet at this point. Judas has left to betray him and to betray the rest of the disciples. And so he looks around at these people he's so compassionate about. He spent 12 years with these, or three years with these 12 men. And he loves them. And he cares about them. And even though he's going to die the next day, this gruesome death, he, he is caring about those people that he loves. And he'll, he'll, care, he'll, he'll sweat drops of blood for his own pain later. But right now he's trying to pour into them the instructions they need for what's going to be a very difficult couple of days for them, a very difficult couple of months from them. And many of these disciples will end up dying a martyr's death for him. So he's trying to pour into them this last bit of teaching. And so he, he gives them this image of the, the, the branches and the vine to try to help them prepare for what they're going to go through. The basic imagery is not that hard to understand. Jesus is the vine. He's the center source of their nutrients and their life. We are the branches. They are the branches. We're supposed to live and grow out of the nutrition that he gives us. And the father is the the vine dresser who prunes and tends to and grows the branches. He says he is the real vine or the true vine. That's an interesting phrase. You could just say you're the vine, but he says I'm the true vine. You know what that means? It means there are false vines. In the Bible, actually, there's this imagery of, of the vine a lot. It was very common in Israel. Um, but most, throughout most of the Bible, the vine or the vineyard is a symbol of Israel. It's a symbol of Israel. In fact, most of the time, it's a symbol of how Israel has trouble bearing fruit. For example, Jeremiah 2.21 I planted you as a fruitful vine, entirely genuine. How have you become a wild vine turned to bitterness? That's the image of Israel. But Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Not because he replaces Israel. That's not the theology going on there. It's not what he's trying to tell his disciples. But because he's going to be what Israel never could be. What you and I never could be. He's going to be the real source of life. See, Israel, like you and I, make very poor vines and sometimes good branches. When we try to be the center of our own life and we try to be our own center, our own nutrients, our own life, well, we weren't meant to be that. And so we struggle. Our concern should not be with saving ourselves, not concerned with being the center of our own lives. Our job is to abide in the vine. Now, some translations say here, remain in the vine, but that's not the best. I like the translation abide because it's an active word, not a passive word. Doesn't mean just sit there in the vine. To abide in the vine is to hang on, it's to latch on, to hook in, to plug in. We need to actively abide in Jesus. And Jesus gives us a few ways to do that. He speaks of his word abiding in us. Now, let's be careful. Anytime the Bible says word, we typically insert Bible. But in the Bible, the word word means so much more than that. Jesus speaks or God speaks to create the world. God speaks to give life and sustain the world. He gives his word to the prophets. John tells us that in, that in the fruitfulness of time, 
the Word became flesh. And yes, the Word did become text. And so the Bible is a special part of our understanding of the Word, but the Word is more than that. The Word is God's creating and sustaining act in the world. And so what Jesus says, if you want to abide in me, abide in my word, my words. Listen to me, pray, read the Bible, worship together. There's all these things we actively do to plug into the word of God. Because Jesus is the divine vine that we need to be connected to. And if we disconnect, we're going to wither. We're going to die. We're going to be good for nothing. We have to stay plugged in. This is an important warning for the disciples in this moment because of what they're about to go through, right? They're about to see Jesus betrayed and never forget when Jesus is betrayed. The other disciples are also betrayed. They're going to see one of their own betray them. They're going to see their Savior, their Lord that they've been following die on a cross. They're going to wonder if they might be next. Then they're going to see their Lord risen again and they're going to have to take his word after his ascension out into the world. How will they abide? And they're going to see their friend Judas as one of these branches that never really abided in the first place. So they've got to get into the word. Jesus is trying to encourage them. Part of that, Jesus tells us, is also to follow his commandments. This doesn't mean you become a perfect person. In this specific context in John, the big commandment is to love one another. Are you a person that loves? Does the work of Jesus, does the word in your abiding grow into fruit? Are you obeying those commandments? Most importantly, we better not mix up in our lives who is the vine and who is the branches. It's not all up to us. Our real source of life and of fruit is Jesus the divine vine. And so we're supposed to be actively abiding, but but hear how these words work. Jesus is also actively plugging us in, and the Father is actively pruning us and grooming us and tending to us. This is great news. Words of comfort. Because even if you fall away, even if you've struggled to stay connected to God, God stays connected to you. Our job is just to simply try to abide, to let Jesus' life flow through us. That's not to say it's always an easy process. I don't know about you, I don't like this idea of pruning. When I hear pruning, I'm not sure I like it. I just moved, and we had to prune our stuff, cut and get rid of stuff. I bet you if I walked around some of your houses, you don't like pruning either. I don't like the idea that sometimes things that grow are growing in my life and I like are things God wants to prune so that better things can grow. I don't like the idea that there are some dead things in my life that I'm hanging on to that maybe God really needs to pluck out of there. And sometimes it hurts when that pruning happens. This is one of my life verses. Because it's such a powerful image of our relationship with Christ. We abide in him and he abides in us. It's not all up to us. It's just up to us to try to connect. To try to let God do what he wants in our lives. And I think this text has huge implications for a lot of things in our life. How we plan our day. How we do our jobs at work. How we relate to our grandchildren. 
And I hope this text haunts you a little bit. I hope this week you have this image of the vine in your head and it kind of sticks with you and bothers you a bit. Am I really abiding on Thursday the way I probably should have since Sunday? <clears throat> but there's one particular area that I want to explore for just a few minutes that I think needs our attention related to abiding. And that is the way we make decisions. The way we make decisions in our lives. If we really come out of this sense of abiding, we should make decisions differently. You've been taught your whole life to make decisions by analysis. The word analysis means to break up or to loosen up. From the time you were in middle school, you were taught to write essays by taking apart issues, breaking down the parts, make a pro-con list. What did you like about the book? What didn't you like about the book? What would you do differently? You make a pro-con list. You evaluate and compare options to make the best decision. It's like taking a car apart. You take apart the parts till you find what's broken, then you put a new part in or you fix it, and then you put it all back together. We are oriented towards finding problems and either fixing them or avoiding them. Now listen, there's a place for analysis. We need to analyze. But the call of Christians is different. In the whole Bible, I can't find one time when the disciples sat down and said, okay, let's make a pro-con list about this, right? Where any of the prophets said, let's make, make a cost-benefit analysis and see what we're supposed to do. It just doesn't happen. In the Bible, you pray and you discern. If we analyze, it's based on us. It's based on our, we're the vine. I'm the vine when I try to analyze and make the best decision. And by the way, how many decisions in the Bible would the people have actually made had they an, made an analysis, right? Gideon, you have too many soldiers. Moses, go to Pharaoh. All you need is your staff, says the bush, right? If I'm going to analyze this, I'm not sure I should be listening to a bush to go to Pharaoh with a rod. Jesus picks his disciples and he picks fishermen and bums. There's only one disciple probably has a good sense of leadership and initiative, and it's Judas. Okay? You wouldn't pick those disciples. Jesus, you want us to feed all these people. We only have five loaves, two fishes. Right? Peter tells him that. He's the clerk of session. Five loaves, two fish. And Jesus says, pass them out. Pass them out. Analysis doesn't get you to the will of God. Discernment does. To discern is to loose or to split apart. Okay? The image of discerning is a panner within the, in California, gold rush, right? And you, you look at yourself and you start swishing it around to see what's in there. And you take your time and eventually, oh, that's gold. You pull it out and you bite it to see if the gold works. Because if it's fake gold, it's hard. But if it's real gold, it's soft. And so you pan and you work to see what God's will is. Following God doesn't mean that we don't analyze, but it means that we primarily discern. We primarily listen for God's voice, and our decisions come out of our abiding. They come out of our relationship to the vine, so that we're not the source, but Jesus is the source. In the Bible, when people make decisions, they pray. They gather together, they ask God, and they wait. Here's the problem with discerning, though. 
problem for discerning is there's no clear-cut plan. It takes time. It's not always clear. It's not always, how do you set up discernment? Well, we'll take this step, this step, this step. But there's no steps to discernment. It just kind of comes out of your abiding. It can be unclear and messy and slowed down. And so it's easier for us, it's quicker to just make the decisions and analyze and hope that God shows up in our decisions. I've been wrestling with this for a while because I was challenged by some friends and by a mentor of mine to really take this idea of discernment seriously. And last year, about this time, I started to discern, I started to get this feeling that my time at my church was coming to an end, that it was time to consider going somewhere else. And so I said, okay, God, I'm going to discern. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Just tell me what it is. And you know what God told me? Nothing. He told me nothing. He didn't tell me anything. I sat around waiting. I said, okay, God, well, I'm going to discern and I'm going to start. I'm going to have to walk through some doors, knock on some doors, see where you might be leading me. And you know the plan that God gave me? Nothing. (laughs) He stayed kind of silent. It was frustrating, depressing at times. And I would march through something and God would close that door. And there were some jobs out there that I thought were really great and I wasn't chosen for those jobs. And there were a lot of jobs I thought were great or okay. And they wanted me and I just got this intuitive sense of, nope, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. And it was messy and it was frustrating and it was bothersome. But here's what I found. That when you really commit to discerning God's will, God is not going to waste that opportunity to help you learn to abide more. And so God's answer wasn't, okay, Jordan, do this, do this. Here's my master plan. Here we go. God was, God's plan was, you need to abide a little more. And I would say, God, I think I'm abiding just fine. No, you, you got you to go deeper. You got to go deeper in your daily stuff. You got to go deeper in connecting with me. You got to wait and you got to listen to me. And it annoyed the snot out of me. <laughs> but he showed me that I wasn't really abiding the way I should. And I had to learn how to abide. I had to learn how to abide. And then over time, as God said yes to this, no to this, no to this, yes, yes, no, I finally talked to a, a guy named Ralph Hawkins, who was an EP in Shenango Presbytery. And he told me about some opportunities, but he was particularly interested in this little church called Northminster that was going through some changes, had some new people coming on board. It seemed like some interesting things going on that might be a fit. And um, I gotta be honest, I hadn't wanted to wait for you all. I wanted it to happen way earlier than that. But something in me changed when I heard that. Something, I don't know. It wasn't analytical. I didn't know much about you. It wasn't a feeling because I didn't know you. But something else happened. And I came to the interview and got to meet some of you. And it was about 10 minutes in and I thought, this may be it. This may be it. And it was the second interview then. This all happened very fast, by the way. There were plenty of Presbyterian churches looked for two years to find a pastor. Okay. It was about 10 minutes in. I thought, ah, this may be it. And the second interview that we, we talked for a long time, the committee asked me to leave. 
They brought me back in and said, Jordan, we think we might want to call you here. Maybe you want to take a couple days or a week to discern what God has. And I said, nope, I can tell you right now, I want to come. <laughs> it seemed fast, but it wasn't fast to me. It was a long time of waiting and discerning and abiding so that the decision when it came, it came out of this place of abiding. I don't know how to teach you how to do that. It's, it's complex. It's hard. It's not linear. But I want to invite you on that journey with me. What would it look like if you and I all together started to really focus on abiding, started to really focus on discerning what God's will is for this church? And I'm going to be honest, it may be that God's will doesn't make a lot of sense by analysis. Maybe God asks us to do some crazy stuff. Maybe God asks you in your personal life to do some crazy stuff. But what if we were brave enough to do that together? What if we were brave enough to really abide and live out of our abiding so that instead of analyzing, we really tried to discern God's will? And then when God gave us his will and we had to get over a mountain or we had to make some changes, then we start to analyze. Well, God called us there. We better figure out a way to go there. What if we took seriously this idea of abiding and discerning? It won't be easy. It'll be messy, but I think it's God's call. And I'm game if you are. Let's pray. Lord, help us to abide. Prune us and help us to take the pruning, knowing that you prune not because you're mean, but because you love us and you want to bring the most fruit from us. Teach us to discern, Lord, that we may follow your will always. In Jesus' name. Amen.